0: Welcome to Missing Bits. This is part two of episode 10, and I'm fortunate to be able to speak to Patricia Walsh. You might remember that last week we spoke to an extraordinary young lady by the name of Sarah, and Patricia is a mum. Hi, Trish. Welcome to Missing Bits.
1: Thank you, Gary. Good to be here.
0: How's your day been?
1: It's been good. It's been good. I've been with back at school with some 860-odd children that are at the primary school that I work at, and we've had Kindy Orientation Day today, and a bit of rain, so it's been interesting.'
0: Sounds like a busy day to me. That's a lot of kids
1: that's always <laughs> I'm lucky I just work with the year sixes
0: right. so i'm okay. um, I'm
1: in learning support so, um but the school has been very busy today
0: sure um i I think of grade six kids as um almost almost high school kids so they're they're a bit easier than the preps.
1: Oh yeah, it's a bit hard. I'm only five foot two, so most of them are actually taller than I am. So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a bit hard to tell them to pick up papers when they're towering over you.
0: Well, when when I was in grade six, I still would have been looking up
1: to you, so it's no drama. <laughs> all my kids, I'm looking up to all my kids now at this stage. So um, yeah, well, we'll
0: I'm still, we'll still
1: at bottom height.
0: <laughs> we'll soon get to to Sarah and And the subject matter, but first let's let's hear about you. um you grew up in Ireland
1: I did. I grew up in a little country town right on the border with northern Ireland. Its name is clonus c l o n e s and I had a wonderful childhood I grew up with um older parents. Mum was forty. When I was born and my brother was... She was 44 when my brother was born and my dad was eight years older than that.
2: Right.
1: So um, <clears throat> amazing life growing up. Um, everything we wanted, everything we needed. We always had what we wanted. We, like, we got what was needed. And, um, yeah, there was no... We would no car. We walked everywhere. or people brought us places. But we never went without.
2: Sure.
1: And um, it was... Um, it's a famous little town in the fact that there's three Catholic churches in the parish and two are in the north and our the main churches in the south. So we lived right on the border and I grew up with the Troubles in the 70s. Yep. And um, But from that town, so much has come out of it. We've had a world champion boxer by the name of Barry McGuigan, who right. was known as the Clonus Cyclone. <laughs> so, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him, but he was a, a neighbour of mine, and um, I grew up with him and his family, and his twin sisters came in my class at school, and yeah, so, great little town.
0: Cool. I'm sure there's some boxing fans listening out there that will know exactly who you're talking about. I have no clue.
1: <laughs> world featherweight champion 1985 for the go. first world title. Yeah, and our little town of that uh, back then, probably three thousand people, swelled to I think nearly a hundred thousand that night. With yeah, Good fans world. just pouring out of everywhere. It was amazing. So it was absolutely amazing. Home of Ulster football, as far well as Gaelic football is concerned, we hold yep. the Ulster final there every the year. And um, yeah, and a lot of other sporting heroes from the, from Ireland have come out of there, and playwrights, and actresses, and. Yes. And now the next generation of kids. Sort of like Yeah.
2: I was about but to say that. And, coming out and there. Sarah.
1: Yeah. And they've embraced her amazingly, like they whenever she's home and that she's um she's more she's welcomed like one of one of them. Yep. So she
0: is. my my wife's from England and every time we go there it's like a big homecoming. Everyone's just so happy to see her.
1: Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And I was back in August. <clears throat> my mum passed away this time last year, and um, I was back in August this year just on my own. And to walk down the main street and people waving at you and saying hello, it was like I'd never left. Yep. Like I left when I was 17 to go to Dublin and <clears throat> and that. <clears throat> but I might as well have been living in the town all that time because it was just everybody still knew who I was, for who I was, not because I was there as mum or... Mary and Con- Seamus Connolly's, you know, daughter, I was me. Yep. And um, it's a huge, yeah, you know, people say, no, oh, I've got teachers I met and come out and have lunch with us or, you know, um, more come and have morning tea. And, yeah, it was wonderful. So it was to be able to you just walk back in and, and it's like you've never left.
0: And you met your husband over there?
1: So, yes, I met Tom. He's from Carrick and Shore. So he's down County Waterford and him and I met in Dublin, In 1986, yes, December 86, we met at a... Back then when I was nursing, we had what was known as nurses' parties every month. And um, he was in the Irish Air Corps and one of his mates was going out with the girl that I was training with. And so the boys would come to the parties and that was it. Sounds
0: like a lot of fun.
1: Been together since, yes. And then... He finished in the Air Corps as a mechanic, and I finished my nursing, and Qantas came to Ireland recruiting for some engineers, and we came out for two years in 1989, and we're still here.
0: <laughs> they, wouldn't, they, they wouldn't take you back, obviously.
1: Oh, they'd have taken us back, but um, <laughs> I think we were, we were quite happy to um, to set up roots here, and yeah, took out our citizenship and bought a house, and eventually kids came along. And um, three kids later, we're still here.
0: <laughs> I've got um, quite a number of Irish friends, and um, that that story is so similar to them. They came out for a look, and they never went back.
1: Yeah, well, we knew we were coming for two years, and yep. um, we decided then after the we went back and got married before the two years was up, and um, came back to finish it and said, "No, we'll stay."
0: And you settled in Sydney.
1: We settled in Sydney, yeah, we were just um, south of Sydney. Um, If anyone knows, it's near the Royal National Park. So, lovely little suburb of Ingadine. And, um, yeah, it's it's good. All we need.
0: And then Sarah came along.
1: So, eventually, Sarah came along, and she's the apple of her daddy's eye, as her two younger sisters are all daddy's girls. And um, so, yeah, so. Sarah was born in July 1998 and we had no idea what challenges we were facing when she was born we we always say we were kind of glad that we didn't know that she had a um, fibular hemimedia because we didn't worry about it we'd been married eight years we'd had two miscarriages we were just delighted that our baby had come to ter- we'd gone full term yeah. and um when she was born we went right well you know we'll deal with it and at the time Tom's brother and his wife were living here and that was the only family we had here and his sister was overstaying with us at the time for a couple of months and it was like right well there was no there was no panic either by the hospital you know when she was born it was like oh we'll get somebody in to have a look at her and there's a little problem with her foot and As we said, she could have had 10 heads. We didn't care. We had a baby girl and she was gorgeous and she was ours and nobody was going to take her away from us. And we had an x-ray the following day and they came back and said, oh, she's got no ankle bone. And I went home from hospital with a letter for a pediatrician in 10 days time. And when we walked up to him, there was no, we had no internet or anything back then. So there was no way you could Google it. And um, come up with any information and um, one of the girls that I was working with she found some information and gave it to us and we went oh, okay we'll see what the surgeon says and he he gave us a choice then at 10 days old he said we can with well, the two parts we can do limb lengthening and bone grafting and he said but I can't guarantee that you'll not get to 18 and have a limp and her legs still wouldn't be right.
2: Sure.
1: Or he said we can fit her with a prosthesis when she's starting to pull herself up to stand. Um, we let her walk. And when she's walking, we take her in and do a Sims amputation. So yep. through the ankle. And we came out of there going, yeah, we know which one we're going to do. Yep. So while I was still nursing, I knew the risks of, you know, acquired infections with hospitals what it would be like for her going in and out of hospital um starting school and being you know coming having to get out of school to go in and have operations and coming back to school in a wheelchair to to she recovered, and we didn't want any of that for her, yes, and she has always been she has always been the forefront of any decision that we ever made it was what would be best for her, sure. and we didn't want her to be going through. Operation after operation after operation. We wanted her to get on with life and be as good, if not better, than everybody else. And that's what we did. We took her to nine months. She got fitted with a prosthetic little prosthetic boot. She walked at 13 months. She had her surgery. She's probably close to 18 years ampiversary this probably week. Yeah. Our next cool. week, that's so eighteen been eighteen years, and she went into hospital on the Tuesday, had the operation on the Tuesday and was home Thursday. Right. And she showed us then how determined she was. So they'd said to us they'd put a cast on it to protect the stitches and they said, Look, keep her off it for two weeks and that was the nightmare when it started. She got herself out of Travel cops. She, We found her on the kitchen table. <laughs> we, um, she got out of high chairs and it got to the point where we're going, we can't stop her. So we just wrapped the, got extra big socks and just put a couple of pairs of extra big socks on. It was wintertime over the, the cast and we just let her go. Yeah. And we thought, well, if it's not hurting her, you know, what's, you know, there's no harm in it. So and two weeks later, they took the stitches out and within two weeks, they fitted her with her first prosthetic. Um, you know, after the surgery, so she'd already had one. She, you know, she'd put it on and off herself and everything. And um, so they said, right, it's going to take her two weeks to walk again. So we'll see you in two weeks' time. And Tom had come from the airport to Redfern, <clears throat> where we were having the the leg made. And so he went back to work, and I took her home. We were home 20 minutes and I couldn't find her. She's standing at the front door telling me she wanted to go across the road to see Bep, who was our old neighbour. See Bep, see Bep. So she'd walk. She was up and she was walking and she was gone.
2: Yeah.
1: So when we went back to the hospital two weeks later, she just ran in and they just shook their heads and went, there's no dramas with her. And it from that day, whenever she get a new leg, I could go and pick it up from Redfern, drop it to school, and she'd have the the colourful legs, and she'd go out to play in one leg, and I'd pass the, leg, the new leg over the fence at the playground. Yeah. She'd change legs and go back to into class with a different coloured <laughs> leg on. <laughs> so there was no breaking it in or you know taking it easy. So and the teacher would get. I thought you had a blue leg on. <laughs> <I> why <went to laughs> now you got a pink one. So well, the, the determination. Oh, yeah, the kids were spray-painting before she got back in. <laughs> um, but if, you know, But even then, she was a determined little girl who knew exactly what she wanted. Sure. And, yeah, and we just went with it.
0: Yep. I had um, you know, a Zyme can... amputation when I was five, um, and they put me in a cast afterwards, and they had to put a cork in the bottom of the cast to... To protect the because I was tearing around on it everywhere. So I yeah. for, I'm not sure for how long it was there, but I was running around on just a cork.
1: Yeah. And and that's what you do. You just you know, pe when we talk to families and they, they say, said, Oh, what do we do? When, you know, the this and the that and they have the surgery and they'll go Whatever they are able to do, they will do it. Yep. The yep. last thing you can you want to do is to stop them from doing something. Because they have to figure it out for themselves.
0: Yep, absolutely. I agree 100%. I, I was left, left to pretty much manage on my own. And um, I was never told what I couldn't do. Um, I was no. just expected to find out what I couldn't do.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if when she'd come home, like from, when, you know, she was little and friends were going to do fizzy, physical culture, do you want to try it? Yeah, yeah, I'll give it a go. And she did it for two years. Mm-hmm. And then the ladies retired. And she actually won her little awards for being there every week. <laughs> um, but she loved doing it. And she was doing exactly what her friends were doing.
2: Yep.
1: And then when they started the ballet and she was in the concert and the whole lot and came to the second year. And I said, oh, you're going to do ballet this year. And she, and she said it yesterday. No, I can't. I wasn't finding it hard to point my right toes. <laughs> so I said, fine. You know, no dramas. We always said if you if you start the year something and i not it's been paid for it, you finish it. Yes. When she it wasn't one of those things, Oh, I don't feel like going this week, so you know, I'm I'm gonna stop. Whatever you start, you take it up for the year, you finish it, and it's been the same with, with all the girls. <clears throat> and um but she gave everything a goal. You know, there was never anything that she would say, I don't want to do it she'd try it and if it didn't work out that's fine Um, like even swimming like she would be the one that would get up five in the morning to go to squad swimming and I'd lie in bed and I always say the morning she doesn't get up I know she's had enough Sure. but every morning for I think probably two years five o'clock in the morning she was up ready she'd be waiting for me to take her to the pool or the her sisters were little she would walk it's a five minute walk and she would she'd walk to the pool on her own She'd take a, um, a spare mobile phone and she'd walk down with it and talk to me the whole way down. And then I'd pick her up then. And then there was one morning she didn't get up. And um, and I said, you know, going to swimming. And she said by this stage, she was doing um, squad athletics. So <clears throat> she realized that. It was more, there was more friendship and there was more camaraderie and it was more social
2: yeah.
1: than putting your head in the bottom of a pool for an hour and a half every morning. And she said, No, I think I've had enough of swimming. And by that stage, she'd represented New South Wales at athletic, you know, um, at swimming, Australian swimming championships and stuff. So um, she'd given it a good go and the high school had come along and she was starting to do full on training for athletics. And that was, yeah, she, she was ready to give it away. So, um, but yeah, anything she's tried, she's, she's turned her hand at it. Like the wheelchair basketball. I said to her, I said, I remember your first day in a wheelchair. I said, we went to, so one of the swimmers we knew, Michael Orprince, who's also in a, he's in a knee knee amputee.
2: Yep.
1: He was a, um, Australian swimmer, but he was also playing wheelchair basketball. And <clears> he, <throat> he, Seen this one day, and he said, "Oh look, why don't you bring Sarah out to the New South Wales Wheelchair Sports Come and Try Day, to ride?" So we thought, "Right, we'll we'll go and give it a go." And she went out, and they had wheelchairs, and she hopped in a wheelchair, and we discovered that Sutherland had their own wheelchair basketball club. And Tom decided, "Oh, do you want to have a try going to there?" So she they went, and eventually he ended up becoming the coach which he still runs the, the Southern Wheelie Sharks um, wheelchair basketball club, so he does. And, um, and yeah, she wasn't too long since she was on the New South Wales team, juniors team. Goodness me. So, um, and, yeah, she, she's knocked a few big blokes out of chairs in her day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've, got, I've got to say that the, the two sports that I love watching is um, wheelchair rugby and wheelchair um, basketball. They're just insane.
1: Yeah. they
2: are insane. Yeah.
1: And when you've got when you've got mixed teams, yep. like if you do any, they do the slams, like they're playing older guys, um, and some of them were with the Invictus Games there a couple of weeks ago. Some of the guys, and she, yeah, she'll get stuck in with them, and against them, Yep. no trouble to her. But we soon realised that disability sport is so different from able-bodied sport, right. Um, they had the women's um, wheelchair basketball weekend, and Sarah had only been in a wheelchair, you know, playing wheelchair basketball for a while, and that was the first time she'd actually sat in a wheelchair mm-hmm. for any reason. <clears throat> and um, they went up to Narrabeen and Sarah didn't have a wheelchair, but Lisa Tesh, who was one of the, um, I think the Flames, yeah, she's the, the Australian women's team,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um. She was playing for them and she has since gone in to win Paralympic medals at sailing and she's now a state member of parliament here. Um, she was there, but she was going sailing that weekend and she left her chair for Sarah to use. Right. So like, she didn't know Sarah from the bar soap, but she saw this kid who was there who had no chair, left it for her. And when we went up to watch, the way they embraced the younger kids coming through, like Each team was saying, like the team Sarah was playing with and the team she was against, were telling Sarah where to go in order to defend or to attack. You know, so you've got the opposition telling a kid where that she should be in order to defend and attack them. And it was just amazing the way, I don't think you'd get that with able bodied sport. They're just a different breed, and an amazing, amazing group of people. Those that are involved in para sports.
2: Excellent.
0: Um, now I've got to ask you what sort of student she was, because as far as <laughs> as far as she could tell, us, um, there was a, there was a bit of um, Einstein going
1: on there. Uh, no, she did say she wasn't the smartest in in the <laughs> class, and and academically, Sarah always. Did enough to get her where she needed to be. Yeah, that kind of way. She would put enough of an effort in. She had to work for whatever she got. Like her, her, her yep. younger sister is the opposite end of the scale. Right. <clears throat> she's gifted and talented and the creative end, the creative kid. She's the you know writes music and writes songs and writes you know does drama plays and everything like that. So she's that creative. We've got Sarah, the um, the athlete, and poor Tom has said, two of them that are not going to be able to earn any money to support us. <laughs> <Two of them. laughs> so the poor Laura is going to be left with, with, with having to care for both parents because the other two are not going to have careers that are going to make us any, make them any money. But um, so anything she ever got, she worked hard for and we always knew that whatever grade she got she had that was the best that she could get but she always passed her exams and stuff there was no no dramas and i remember a primary school saying something to the, pr- the principal one day and she went trish there's a special place in the world for sarah
2: <laughs>
1: and so back then um she said there was but school reports yeah beautiful student and a pleasure to teach um, the only comment that would ever make against her was that she never put her hand up in class to ask questions.
2: Right.
1: She was just the quiet one that would sit there and, and take it all in. But, um, yeah, she knew, like, when she was finishing school, what kind of, a, we have what's called an ATAR, which is like a mark that you get with, you combine all the subjects for to get into university. And she knew exactly the ATAR she needed to get into University of Canberra to do the course she wanted, and that's all she aimed for. Yep.
2: That's so, all
1: you need to do so didn't put herself under the pressure and the stress of anything more than what she needed, and that's all that's what she got, and that's all she needed and thats we always say to the kids, we're not expecting you know q j towers or whatever do what it is you want to do, yep. and that's what you aim for yeah, it there's no much... pressure from us
0: <clears throat> sounds pretty much the same as my boys they um They knew what they wanted, and they did enough to achieve that, and then that was done.
1: Yes, yes. So Katie wants to go into acting and drama. Um, (laughs) She's sixteen now, and Laura's fourteen, nearly fifteen, but she's no haven't got that far yet as to where she wants to go in life. life, 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 Life's a cruise for Laura. Yeah, there's no stress with her. So I think think um,
0: sometimes too, there's a lot of pressure on kids to know what they want to do.
1: Yeah. Too much pressure sometimes. I said, "Look, yeah, do what it is. Whether you want to do a trade, go into hairdressing, whatever it is that you want to do, we will support you.
2: Yep,
1: every decision you make, because so yeah, there are too many kids, unfortunately, who yeah, they're, they're fulfilling their parents' dreams. Yes, I agree. Not I their own. I agree old.
0: entirely. And, and every, yes. every kid is, is not an extension of their parent. It's a new generation of people that need to move on with the world and take over from, from where we leave off.
1: Exactly, exactly. Doing what makes them happy.
0: What sort of reaction did you get from um, family and close friends after the, um, after the surgery? I know um, when I had my surgery done, there were quite a number of um, people, especially in my um, immediate family, who thought it was the wrong thing.
1: So we had 17 months before, or 16 months before Sarah had the surgery. And we brought her back to Ireland. So she was born in July. We brought her back in November, September. <clears throat> so everybody had seen her back back in Ireland um, with her little foot. And yeah, some of them, the reaction from most people was, why off? Why did you, why, why were you given Sarah? Like, Right. They, they just don't understand why we would be given a child with a, a difference. And we're going, well, why not? Yeah, exactly. You know, that, that kind of a way. <clears throat> when Sarah was born, the midwife said to us, you know, that God only gives special kids to special parents who know how to look after them and deal with them. And we always then, from then on, took Sarah as a privilege to have. So our outlook with Sarah probably um, manufactured how everybody else dealt with it. Yes. Because we were happy with it and it wasn't causing us concern, then it was all right for them to be acceptable, to accept it and not be concerned.
2: Sure.
1: And then we took her back again. When she she actually started to walk in Ireland, so they'd seen her again just before the surgery, and they all realised that it's what was needed for her to be able to live a normal life. Yep. But that's the surgery, and yeah, there was no, never an issue, you know, with the surgery. Everybody supported us because they knew we knew it was the right thing for Sarah. Sure. I guess if we had been in two minds as to what to do. Then we may have had split um, opinions from different sides, and you know, but because we were adamant as to what we wanted for her, then everybody just supported us, and there was no there was no dramas whatsoever. As I said, when she was born, people that the only thing they had an issue with was why, why you, why? I'm going well, yeah. As I said, why not? Yeah we were more than capable of um, dealing with it and living with it and embracing it and, as I said, privileged to be able to raise a child who was different into the young lady that she is now. Sure. So,
0: yes. How how special was it to see Sarah represent her country?
1: Oh, well, I, mean, I wasn't there for the first time when she was over in Glasgow because tom took her she, um british athletics actually paid for her to go over so um so they paid for tom to go as well and yep. um, so i didn't get to see i watched it on on the, tele- on the internet so that was very very special but when her first representation that we got to see i got to see was in doha in 2015 mm-hmm. when she represented australia at the, the world championships for the first time and um It was just amazing, absolutely fantastic, as a you know seventeen-year-old to see her, you know, on the green and gold, and to you know just look back at photographs of her, you know, waving her off at the plane, and she was going off, you know, training, you know, training camp and what have you, yeah, and she just quite happily happy to go, but it had been on her radar. When she was in year six at school, we had to go across to the college. So the, in the parish we're in, the primary school is a the Catholic primary school is just across the road from the, the, the college, the high school. So we had to go over for a meeting because she was going to the college and the principal was there and then he said to Sarah, so what do you want to do when you leave school? And she said, well, the Rio Paralympics are on, she said, when I'm doing my HSC and I'm going to the Rio Paralympics. Wow. So she was just turned 12. Yep. So she already had it in her head then that she was going to Rio. Sure. And the school supported her the whole way through to the point where um, she did her high school certificate over two years instead of one. So she only actually finished school this time last year as a okay. 19-year-old. So um, so that she could train. So she only did three subjects the first year for her high school certificate and then she did the other three last year and um and they were just amazing but knowing that especially when she got to Rio knowing that that had been in her heart all those years that was probably the most special part you know the first Paralympics yeah it's always I think a huge thing and Um, when she was talking yesterday about that day in Rio when she finished competing and she came back crying. And, um, and I said to her coach, I said, how how long has she been crying? And he said, since she walked off the track. Oh, wow. And, um, and and it's exactly as she said, he was trying to break down what had been going on with her jumps and that. And, and she said on television that day on channel seven, you know, she was thanking everybody and, what an amazing experience and she said to them on, on television you know i didn't jump my best but it was the best that i could do mm-hmm. today
0: yeah i must have, i must admit it. when we were talking about that and she was getting emotional um i was getting yeah and emotional. I, I get
1: emotional even though I'm talking about it too yeah,
0: i wasn't um, even there and, and i was getting emotional
1: yeah and, and it's on it's on youtube you can you can pull it up on youtube cool. and um and she said, you know, with the noise and the atmosphere, she said, that was the best I could do. And she said, I will come back bigger and better. But she said, I'm a Paralympian. I've competed the Paralympics and nobody can take that away from me. Absolutely. And that was what that day was about. And when she came back, and the Brazilian fans were just all over her. Like it took her 20 minutes just to get through the stand to get to it because they were hugging her and kissing her. And we were thinking, oh, maybe they think she's Brazilian because it's green and yeah, the it's green like and that. gold. But no, it was because, and it was the first day of the track as well, they had been through the Olympics mm-hmm. and had had no contact with athletes at all. Yeah. Paralympics are totally different. The athletes come back into the stand to see their families and the general public get to meet them. And that happened to us in Sydney. We took Sarah, she was two, to the Paralympics. We were at the opening day of the athletics. And a gentleman, I don't know what, he was shot put or discus or something, from one of the European countries had come up into the stand and we had photographs taken with him mm-hmm. and everything else. And we and we had been to the Olympics a couple of weeks before that and, again, we'd seen nobody. Yeah. The athletes would compete and Oh, and that was it. There was no interaction between the public and the the athlete.
2: Yep.
1: Whereas the Paralympics was so different. And then Sarah, all those years later, was that athlete coming back into the the stand and just being mobbed by these people who just just to be near. They just wanted to touch a par. You know, one of the athletes. They just wanted that contact sure. that they hadn't had for the whole three weeks of the Olympics. And, um, yeah, and that was really special. But then she went to London last year, again, for the World Championships. She was in third position up until the last jump. Yep. And the Japanese girl jumped better than her. And when she came back, I said, how do you feel about that? And she said, mum, a four point, whatever she jumped, 469, she said, wasn't deserving of a bronze medal a 5 meter jump was more deserving of a bronze medal and she said i didn't deserve to win a bronze medal at 469 or 479 whatever it was she jumped
2: uh-huh.
1: and that's but after she'd competed we had been as well as peer supports for limbs for life before even limbs for life started we were peer supports for an organization in the uk called steps right and um we would have families get in touch with us mums would be still pregnant and they'd find out that their daughter or son had Hemi Media. They'd ring and talk to us and we'd FaceTime or Skype and Sarah would kick off her leg and show them and all those things. Seven families from across the UK that we had peer supported turned up to watch her compete in London. Wow. And Sarah came back into the stand after she competed and she sat on the steps in the stand with these seven kids and their family, they all took their legs off, including her, and they, they all have fibular hemimelia, and they all sat on the steps comparing stumpies.
0: Goodness me!
1: <laughs> and so that was huge. Yeah, that sure. to me was, you know, amazing. And we all said, if you had won the bronze medal, you would have had been, you know, be whisked away for drug testing and this and that and the other. This is where you were meant to be.
2: Absolutely.
1: And it brought those seven families together who had never met each other either. They'd known that they'd all had some sort of contact with us over the years. And um, for them, that was huge. That And she just yeah, sat down and each kid's taken their leg off and they're comparing stumps and they're comparing the little scars on the front of their tibias. And, and the, the parents were just in tears because for their own kids to see somebody compete at a world championships and then just walk up into the sand and sit down and talk to them as one of themselves. It was a, an amazing experience and just to stand there as a parent and watch her do that
2: yep.
1: meant more than any medal on that day sure. could have done.
0: Yeah, there's, there's, we should be getting medals for stuff other than winning.
1: Yes. But they're the things you know that go on behind <laughs> the scenes but nobody, nobody knows about, yep. you know, the the peer support that she has done for those families from a young age. And we always say to her, Sarah, if you only change, if you only make a difference to one family in your life, you have done a huge amount.
2: Yeah,
1: I agree. But I said you have made a difference to so many families in the few years that you have been around that and and still many more to come. And she's such an unassuming kid, you know. She'll say to you, oh yeah, you know, like yesterday she said oh yeah, I'm jumping five meters. It's you know it's all right. Well, she knows that the world record six meters, so yeah. to her five meters is just all right. Yeah. She knows <laughs> she has got another meter to be up there, but she will not boast about it when she would win medals through school sport she'd come back to school and those medals would be in her pocket. Yep. And they'd only be in her pocket because I'd made her put them there. Yeah. And she'd get back to school and the teacher would go, so how'd you go yesterday, Sarah? Oh, yeah, all right. Did (laughs) you win any medals? Oh, yeah. How many? "Uh, A few. (laughs) What's it been? Three gold and a silver and I broke three records, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, so, yeah, that was yesterday. What are we doing today? You know, get on with life and um, on to the next challenge. Sure.
0: How hard was it uh, to let her go off to Canberra to live on her own?
1: Uh, it, the day she left was hard, yep. but Tom and I both left home at 17, 18. We both lived in the country. We both had to move to the city to do what we wanted to do. And I suppose... Aussie families aren't like that. Mm-hmm. Your kids are still at home at 25, 26. Go you know, they go to uni, especially if they're in the city. They live at home, they go to uni, and they're at home until whatever, they get married or whatever. Whereas Irish families, 17, 18, you had to go if you lived in you know, um, country areas. Sure. So it was like the natural progression for us. That's where she needed to be to do what she needed to do it's only three hours down the road and um she's always been a very independent self-regulating kid you know if there's things to be done she would go ahead and do it and then you know when she'd be um putting in for competitions and stuff and her coach would ring and say, "Oh, you know, there's a competition on such and such a date. Can you put an entry in for Sarah?" And I'd go, "Sarah, there's a competition on such and such a day. Yeah, yeah, no, I've done that. I got your credit card, I've paid for it. It's all done." <laughs> she was like four. She was fourteen.
2: Right.
1: Oh, and he'd go, "I've got twenty-year-olds that can't do that." You know, she would know when training was. She'd be in the car. You ready for training, Mum? Not once have we ever said to her come on, Sarah, you've got training today, hurry up. She was always the one wanting to be there.
2: Sure.
1: We just facilitated getting her there. Yep. And when you've got a child, and Katie's the same with her drama and her music, and Laura's the same with her dancing, if you've got kids that want to be somewhere, then it's easy to do it, it because is. you're not... Pulling and dragging them. If they need to be pulled and dragged somewhere to do an activity, they don't want to be there.
0: Yep. I'd I'd love a dollar for every time my kids would drag me somewhere.
1: (laughs) And you go, well, that's if they, that's, she's ready to go, everything's organised. Yeah. And we would drive in and out to Homebush when she started training out there. So she'd finish school three o'clock, get her out to Homebush for four. She'd train for for two hours and drive her back again. She got to 16. The first thing she did was got her learner's license. So then she was driving out with us and driving home, so she was getting her hours up. And um, she's a huge advocate, though, for... She doesn't like bureaucracy. Yeah,
2: I can understand
1: that. Yeah, she gets very upset when things are not as they should be and people are disadvantaged and even worse if it happens to her. Yep. So when she went for her her peas, her red peas, she'd been out, she'd had her driving instructor take her out and she knew exactly where she was going and we've gone down to the and um, Transport Authority office in the town and said, look, look she's going for her is there anything we need to do that's different? Because we looked on the way on the website and it said, you know, if you've got a disability, you need to go down to your local office and book in the appointment there. So we went down, we asked what we need to do, and they said, No, 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 just go and book it online. Went home, we booked it online for the date and time that suited us, got the driving instructor to take her down. We get down there and she goes up to the desk with her phones and her L L licence and even it said on the back of it must wear prosthetic leg. Yep. Doesn't say wear, just that she <laughs> needs to wear it. <laughs> and um rocked up and the guy filled in all the forms, and the driving instructor said, And you know, she's got a prosth- and she's got a prosthetic leg and he went and I was at the the door of the office and I could hear the guy saying, "I can't test her with her problem." And I went bolting across the the office, and I said, "What problem?" I said, "She doesn't have a problem. She's got a prosthetic leg. She's been driving for twelve months. I'm not qualified to. She needs a specialised um, instru- uh, tester." Oh, for God's sake! So it started there and then. She laid into them. And why am I, you know, there's no different, I've been able to drive a normal car, da 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 Oh, you'll have to go somewhere else to do your test with this tester. So we left it at that, we booked it in, we came back to getting in and went into the RTA and walked into the lady that had served us the three weeks before that. Oh, my daughter wants to do her peas. Is there anything we need to do? She's got a prosthetic leg. No, 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 just go online and book it in. No, you don't. So we went through the whole issue and Sarah said, can you please make sure that people know that that's not what you do? Because she said, I don't want to have anybody else go through what I've just gone through today yeah. because people don't know what the right thing is. She said, mum, this can't be, ha- can't happen to anybody else. What can we do? And I said, well, our local state member of parliament is just around the corner. How about we go round to him? Yeah. Because so it's discrimination. So we went round. He wasn't there, but we left a message, explained to the lady what had happened and um, that worked for him. The next day, I get a phone call from Road Management Services. It had got through to them. So our said member of parliament had gone to his counterpart to do a road and services. Who yeah. so then got on to the people. They were like, what can we do? I said, well, the the only real solution is, which isn't going to happen is that somebody comes out to our local area and takes Sarah to do her driving test. I said, because the driving instru- uh, tester yesterday wants her to go to a totally different suburb, 45 minutes away, to do her test. Right. And I said, I don't think that's the way it should be. Yep. So I said, the, the, the nicest thing would be for somebody to come and test her where she knows. What's going on? Leave it with me. The next day, can Sarah be in Miranda at three o'clock on Thursday? There's a tester coming from Libcom, which was an hour away, to test her, and okay. she went and did her test where she needed to be. Yep. She got mentioned in Parliament by that state by that state representative when she competed then in Doha. Right.
2: Um.
1: There was a member. He he got up and spoke about her and her determination to make sure that nobody else went through what she went through trying to get her driving test. Right. So, um, yeah, and like they said, ring this number. So I rang the number one day. 45 minutes, I waited for someone to pick up the phone.
0: That's bureaucracy. That was a
1: designated line. Yeah, there was a designated line for people with disabilities to ring to book a driving test. Okay. And when they answered, I said, why is people with disabilities' time less important than able-bodied people. So somebody who's able-bodied can go online, fill in the form online, book the test online, and go and do it. So the person with a disability has to call and wait 45 minutes for someone to pick up the phone and answer it before they can get anywhere.
0: Yep, and then wait 12 months.
1: So. And then wait, you know, for and be told the wrong information anyway. Yep. So so yeah, so she made she made a difference and that was her decision. She wanted to know what she could do to make sure that it didn't happen to anybody else.
0: It sounds sounds like she's um gonna manage in Canberra on her own pretty well.
1: She will manage in Canberra <laughs> on her own extremely well. <laughs>
0: Before we finish up, do you have a bit of advice for, for parents about to go through this sort of thing themselves?
1: Um, find somebody who's already been through it yep. and get their perspective. We, unfortunately, didn't have that um, privilege when Sarah was little. There was no limbs for life, limbs for kids. There was nowhere. The first um, contact we had with a child who had an amputation was when Sarah was nine months old and we met someone at the Sydney Children's Hospital and that was for my husband the first time he'd seen another child having had the same surgery yep. <clears throat> and it reinforced with us why we had it, her surgery so early because his child was seven and had to take time off school. Yep. Talk to someone and um, don't wrap them in cotton wool just let them be children let them crawl through the dirt, let them climb, let them ride the bikes, let them fall off the bikes like Sarah did and, and break her elbow. Yeah. Um, let them climb climbing frames. They will find their own way and you have to let them be who they are, not who you want them to be.
2: Yes.
0: Thank so. you for taking the time to share your story and more about Sarah. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Trish, and I want to thank you for being so open and honest and sharing your story.
1: Not a problem. We are privileged to be able to help Limbs for Life and Limbs for Kids in any way we possibly can. And for anybody who knows about it, Sarah has a T-shirt that she has designed, and she raised funds for Limbs for Life and Limbs for Kids through it, and it's called Dare to Stare.
0: I have one of those. Um,
1: You have one of those? I do have one of those. Yes, and all profits from that go straight to Limbs for Life. Excellent.
0: I will look up some links like for YouTube and and the T-shirt and put them on the show notes. Thanks so much for your time, Trish, and have a great night. Thanks, Gary. Take care. Bye. Bye. And here we are at the end of Season 1. I hope you have enjoyed listening and will return with us for Season 2 starting sometime in January. It's been an amazing journey for me, Missing Bits started as just a simple idea. The reality is that it's been a huge learning curve. Starting a podcast from scratch was much harder than I ever imagined. The one thing I have learned is that we all have a story that begins far earlier than when we lost our limbs. And that story continues through our desire to live our lives. If you like what we have done, then please download, follow us or join in the conversation yourself. Most of all, share the wonderful stories that we are collecting far and wide so that we can show the world who we are. Thanks have to go to the board of Limbs for Life for their support and encouragement in the making of this podcast. In particular, Melissa Noonan, who told me I could do this even when I had a million doubts. Thanks have to go to the people who have shared their stories and been so open and honest, and to each and every one of you who have listened. A deep thank you to my wife Ruth for putting up with my obsession. You're my number one supporter and my best friend. Thanks for not holding back when you saw a problem and helped me overcome them, and for the encouragement you've given me. Have a safe and wonderful Christmas and New Year and we'll see you sometime in January 2019. Bye for now.